Well, good morning to you. Hey, uh, if you're new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us because we gave you a free study guide that'll take you uh, all the way through from Luke chapter 9 all the way to about Luke chapter 19. So by the time, you know, we hit 2028, you'll be done with that one and it'll, boy, it'll be great. Um, so we are back in Luke here today. I just want to say one thing uh, before we get started. It is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and uh, it gives me a time every single year to talk about the importance of racial reconciliation and racial unity. Uh, our heart here is that we would be a people characterized by unity. And if you look around, we have people from all different kinds of backgrounds all over the church, socioeconomically, uh, ethnically, racially, from different backgrounds. Uh, and one of the beautiful things about uh, the church on earth is that the church on earth is evidence that unity uh, is available through the blood of Christ alone. The church's confession is that true unity for men and women and slave and free and Greek and uh, barbarian, Paul says, are all one in Christ, that we all have the same status as a result of what Jesus has done for us. So one of the things that we confess as a church and the thing that the scripture makes very, very clear is that there is no place for ethnic superiority of one group of people being more important uh, than another group of people. And subsequently, there's no room for any kind of ethnic hatred in the church. Rather, when Paul writes about this in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he says this. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and what Paul writes in Ephesians 2 is something that uh, is an ethnic division that is a historical one in the lives of the people in the Ephesian church. The Jew and Gentile distinction was created far more uh, ethnic strife than perhaps any other in the scriptures. And Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, takes the glory and the truth of Christ and applies it to that problem. And he says this, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer stranger and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So our hope and prayer as a church is that as we continue to hold out the gospel, as we continue to send mission teams out into new places to reach people who don't look like us, act like us, have the same background as us, worship in the same language, is that one day we're all headed for Revelation chapter 7, where there are people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, standing around the throne, giving praise and glory to the one God who saved them through the blood of Christ. Amen? That is our hope and that is our confession as the body of Christ here on earth that there is no division that cannot be healed by the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone. So I'm going to pray for that reality in our church, that it would be something that continues to characterize our hearts and our longings and our desires as the people of God, and that we, we would live out that truth, uh, reaching across the barriers that our culture may say are insurmountable, but that we, with the truth and the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, might be able to cross those barriers and give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ makes a new kind of humanity here on earth. So let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, for what we think about and what we consider here today on truths that pertain to racial unity and ethnic unity, that we might be a place that would continue to hold out the truth that there is no slave nor free, male nor free, female, Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus that we confess that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that all may come, all may be unified, and you will call people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue to be around your throne one day. Would that heartbeat exist in the minds and hearts of the people of Citadel Square? And would we reflect that in the conversations we have, in the relationships that we seek to establish, in the confidence we have that the blood of Christ uh, is stronger than any political or any relational technique of making men into uh, one new man. It's only the blood of Christ that does that. That's our confession. That's what we hold to. That's what we lift up. And we pray that you would do that in us and through us and among us here in this body. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, grab your Luke study guide uh, and turn to that very first page. Let me give thanks just to a couple people before we get going here, uh, both to AJ and to Jonathan Suggs, who uh, preached over the past two weeks. Were you blessed by them? Uh, I, pray, I pray that you were. They were a blessing to me and my heart to have other men who get up and share God's word that hits you right in the heart is just, uh, one, it's an encouragement to me. Two, I'm sure it's an encouragement to you. Uh, and that's our heart of what we try to do here is continue to develop men who can handle the word to bless his church into the years and uh, beyond. So that's our, our hope there, and I hope you guys were encouraged by them. Number two, this study guide that you hold in, in your hand is a result of our staff who really from about Thanksgiving last year through the Christmas holiday worked to put this together to put in your hands as we begin this new year. So I'm going to give thanks to our staff team who did a ton of work uh, bringing this together. And you see, this is our biggest study guide yet, if you can tell. We've got 80 pages in this uh, so more than that, 88 pages in this thing. So we got a lot uh, to get through and to go through. So thanks to our team for doing that. But uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. So if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Turn to Luke chapter 9. Uh, open up your study guide, write in it. Uh, or grab a Bible from a friend who's right next to you. If you need a Bible, you can take one of those Bibles that's in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have one, that's our gift to you. But find Luke chapter 9. 51 to 56 is where we're going to be. Luke 9, 51 to 56. Let me give you a little bit of a background as we get into a new year, and maybe you haven't been in Luke for a while, but the past two sections in Luke that have really made up the training of the 12 have occurred uh, to bring up some very uh, difficult and transformative conversations between Jesus and his disciples. Up to this point, as you'll see in the passage we'll look at in a minute, everything shifts in Luke's gospel. There's a major transition that happens in 951 as what Luke has done in the first nine chapters is focused on Jesus's identity and his coming, his arrival. Now what we're going to do is focus on his going. And everything from this point forward, from Luke chapter 9 to chapter 19, sums up what's going to be the Jerusalem journey. As Jesus now begins to turn and train his disciples and move in his ambition to go toward Jerusalem. But when it comes to the disciples, we've seen two particular struggles or kind of heart uh, perspectives that they've had that Jesus has had to deal with. The first had to do with how they viewed themselves how they viewed their concept of greatness. And you remember Jesus set that child right in the middle of them and said, the greatest among you will be like a child. And then Jesus had to deal with their control issues because they had a real problem with people doing ministry in ways that they didn't approve of. And Jesus said, well, you are not allowed to censure people out there who were doing ministry in my name. You need to be magnanimous. You need to be open-handed because whoever is not against you is for you. Now what we're going to do today, though, is get into another heart attitude that the disciples need to wrestle with. Now, before we do that, I, let me give you a couple things about this next section just to prepare you for what's going to happen in Luke chapter 9 to 19. As I said, this is a section that now focuses on Jesus' going. Between 9 to 19, this is the largest section in Luke. And while other gospel writers condense this amount of material, we're about two and a half years into Jesus' public ministry. So we're in the last six months here before Jesus heads to the cross. But what Luke does, strangely, is take ten chapters to talk about Jesus' travels to Jerusalem. In this section, you have what is characterized in Luke chapter 1 through 9 has been a lot of miracles, hasn't it? We've seen Jesus do all sorts of incredible miracles and things to prove and validate he is who he says he is. Well, in this next section, primarily you have, I think, um, like, you have like 23 of the 37 parables that Jesus gives are in this section. There's only four miracles from 9 to 19. So the majority of what Jesus does in his travels is begin to train and um, educate his disciples about the mission that they're going to take on. So as such, you have a lot of uh, pushing and pulling that happens in the training of the 12. They're going to encounter, just as they did at the end, in the middle of chapter 9, these attitudes that show up, these perspectives they have that Jesus needs to confront and correct. Have you ever found that you, your attitudes need to get corrected by Jesus? 
Yeah, amen. Right? We all have, we, we all have uh, affections and attitudes and perspectives that a lot of time as we come to the word need to get washed through the truth of Jesus and who he is so that we can better see who we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to act, the things that we're supposed to feel, the perspectives we're supposed to have, the uh, kind of words we're meant to use when we talk to people that we disagree with. Now, this lesson here today is perhaps one of the most deeply held challenges that we all have. If you were to consider, everybody, look, it's New Year, right? You're, you're planning things about uh, ambitions that you have in your career, in your family, in your personal life. Amen? Right, is anybody else doing that? Okay, you're doing that. Pretend like it's the New Year. Huh? Uh, and when you do that, we all have a default when we make plans. Because we all default toward, I want to do things better than I've done them in the past, right? I want to hit the gym more than once a month. Okay? We're going for twice a month this year. Next year, maybe three times. But this year, I think it's achievable. Twice a month I'm going to do it. We all have a tendency to go, I want to uh, make this change in my home. I want to make this change in my career. I want to do these things different than I've always done before. But when we think about the progress that we want to make spiritually, one of the things that I think we have a tendency to overlook is the progress that God wants us to make when it comes to our attitudes. And if you were to ask me, Steve, what is the greatest sanctification horizon in your life right now? I would tell you it's not necessarily in the things that I need to do. There are some things that I need to stop doing. There are some things I need to start doing, right? Uh, for sure. But the greatest frontier of personal sanctification in my life right now is what lives at the level of my heart. It's the, it's the attitudes and the perspectives and the longings and the, the what ifs and the is God really there, right? It's the tension that lives in my heart that I have found is one of the greatest obstacles of my personal sanctification. And that's what Jesus has been doing with the disciples is that he's transforming them not just by giving them power to do great things, but Jesus is now beginning to work on the level of their hearts. And what we're going to see today is Jesus' work on the level of their hearts in terms of people, in terms of these disciples and how they respond with mercy to a situation. Now here's a really convicting question that I came up with. You ready? Super convicting. I was convicted about it. I was like, I don't even know if I can say this. It's going to be so bad and so convicting. What if my spiritual maturity if I were to run it through the value of mercy, where would I land? If the only thing in my spiritual life was gonna be, how merciful am I? If that was the only question I asked, where would my maturity rank? And that's a, that is a searching question for me personally. You know what I'm good at? Judgment. Anybody else good at judgment? You good at that? I feel like I've been practicing that for a long time. But what if I started to evaluate my spiritual maturity through the lens of how merciful I was? And that is what Jesus is going to deal with here today in Luke chapter 9. All right? Why don't we pray and we'll jump in and take a look at what we're going to learn here. Father, for these few minutes as we look into Luke chapter 9, would you change us and shape us? Would you dig up the, the attitudes and the affections of our heart in such a way that we might be more conformed to your heart? Would we as men and women and husbands and wives and moms and dads and students gain a greater appreciation for what lives in the heart of Christ? The mercy that flows from him. And would we understand what you might want to teach us by changing the attitudes of our heart and that we, we might walk more in obedience, becoming the kind of people that you want us to be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's take a look here. Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near. Now, Luke has a way of doing this when he writes. He's very good at giving time stamps. Um, 
And he does it here in such a way to let us know that there's, there's a change in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel has a seam, as it, as it were, in Luke 9.51 here that lets us know we're transitioning from what has been happening to what is going on. And Luke uses a term that's not simply time elapsing or time passing, but it's a purposeful time. The word for drawing near is actually a word that shows up back in Luke uh, chapter 8 when Jesus is in the boat and the water is filling up. So it's, it's a sense where Luke writes to let you know that the things that are about to happen are things that are incredibly important. There's a design to these days. And these days are drawing near. These days are filling up. As I said, we're probably two and a half years into Jesus' public ministry. We're probably six months away from his rejection, beating, torture, crucifixion, and death. And Luke lets us know that the clock is ticking, not arbitrarily, but the clock is ticking purposefully. God has a plan. Jesus is here for a purpose. He didn't just come to hang out. He came to accomplish what God wanted him to do. Now look at how Luke describes that. When the days drew near for him to be what? Taken up. Now, the taken up word is an interesting word because uh, it's only used here. Uh, it's, a, it's a noun here, and it's only used in this way, but the verb form shows up in probably two or three other places in Acts. It shows up when the angels are talking to the disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven, and he says, and the angels are asking the men, uh, the men who were the disciples, <clears throat> excuse me, why do you stand staring up into the sky? This man Jesus will come in the same way that he was taken up. It speaks later in, in Acts of uh, Peter when he talks about all Jesus did and said before he was taken up. So what Luke does probably here is give us a picture of everything that's about to happen. On the Mount of Transfiguration, you had Moses and Elijah talking about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And here, Luke lets us know the days are filling up and there's coming a time when Jesus is about to be taken up. And it's as if Luke begins this section focusing on the victory. Because it's one thing for Luke to record two times in this chapter already, Jesus has told us he's, he's headed for crucifixion, he's headed for rejection, he's heading for death. But Luke, in a way, begins this section and all that's going to follow with the fact that victory is ahead. Isn't that good news? It's as if Luke just takes a moment to go, there's coming a day when he goes back to the Father. I know the stuff that's in between. I know the rejection. I know the misunderstanding. I know the torturing. I know the being handed over. I know the being abandoned by his disciples. I know the nails. I know the crown of thorns. I know he's going to give up his spirit. I know he's going to experience the wrath of God. But there's coming a day when he ascends. There's coming a day when he wins. When all of that work, all of that difficulty has a defined and complete end. So that's where Luke starts for us. He says the days are filling up for what is about to come. But there is coming a day when he will be taken up. Now, not only do the scriptures present Jesus as obedient to the plan of God, he's come to be obedient, to always do what is pleasing to his heavenly father. Jesus is self-aware. Jesus knows why he's come. He's been led by the spirit. He knows what awaits him. But in this passage, you also have a picture, a window into the mental and emotional state of Jesus. What is Jesus thinking? What is Jesus feeling? Is Jesus just a robot here to do a prescribed number of things that fulfill Old Testament passages? Well, what you have in the next section of this verse is a window. It's, a, it's an entry point into Jesus' emotional life. Now, look with me at what he says. While the day, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I don't know if that's an encouraging verse for you, an encouraging phrase, but have you ever considered the courage of Jesus Christ? Have you ever considered the resolve of Jesus, the focus of Jesus, the dedication of Jesus? In light of two different times when he tells the disciples what is to come, in light of the fact that he's just been speaking with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, in light of all of what he knows will await him in Jerusalem, Jesus sets his face. It means something that is steadfast, that is immovable. 
that Jesus has resolve. Jesus is not a victim of circumstances. Jesus doesn't accidentally fall into the wrong hands. Jesus isn't arbitrarily crucified because he was at the wrong place or the wrong time. Acts says he was delivered up according to the definitive plan and preordained will of God. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And he faces it and he knows it and he doesn't back down. Is that good news? Is it good news that Jesus knows what he's going to do and has us on his mind and is still resolved and said, I'm not backing down. No one is in my way. I am going to do the thing that God has called me to do. I am going to rescue sinners. Isn't it great that we have someone filled with courage who's able to do that for us? That he, is, he cares more about saving me than I care about me being saved? And that he has an ambition and a resolve and a courage to follow through in the thing that he's called to do. So he set his face to go. Now, Jerusalem has been mentioned once before, as I've mentioned, you know, multiple times so far, that Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. <laughs> Moses and Elijah let Jesus know that he's about to accomplish his exodus where? In Jerusalem. Now, this is a key movement in the book of Luke because up to this point, the ministry of Jesus has been primarily in the northern part of the nation. He's been around the city of Galilee. He's been operating out of Capernaum. All of his miracles, the stilling the wind and the waves, the raising of Jairus' daughter, has all been primarily outside of the religious center of the nation. He hasn't confronted, he's had incidental confrontations with uh, religious leaders. But he hasn't gone into the lion's den. And now when Jesus sets his face, he sets his face to go to the place where he knows he's going to receive the most opposition, the most difficulty, the most hatred, the most animosity toward the claims that he has about who he is and what he has come to do. And he's going to face them in Jerusalem. Now, Hebrews gives you a little bit of this perspective of Christ. I, just, I want you to see this. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 with me for a second. Just to talk about the resolve that we have around Jesus. Turn to your right to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, right in the beginning, verses 1 and 2, uh, gives us a picture of the kind of ways we need to run our own spiritual sanctification journey, the ways that we need to live out the truth of what we know about Jesus. Here's what it says. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him. Isn't that interesting? The joy that was set before him. The reason Luke gives you the point of letting us know that Jesus is to be taken up, Jesus is to ascend, is to give you Jesus' perspective on the whole process. And Hebrews does this in a very strange way. Who thinks that as they're getting ready to be crucified that joy would be the predominant emotion in their heart? For Jesus it was. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What allowed Jesus to endure the wrath of God for us? The joy set before him. What is coming as a result of the work that I am about to do? Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Now, come back to Luke. So we have this image of Jesus who knows what he's about to do, who sets his face with strength and resolve to go right into the place that will cause his crucifixion. And what lives in his heart, what controls his perspective is the joy of accomplishing the work that God has sent for him to do. Uh, Isaiah 53 talks about this. It says that he shall see his, uh, the fruit of his work and be satisfied. It speaks to Christ who knows what he's going to do and is going to experience the joy of being faithful to God, rescuing sinners. So this is how this passage is set up. We're set up as we read this to think about the fact that victory is coming, Jesus is resolved, and he's going to go into the place that will cause his ultimate death. Now, here's how the trip starts. Look at verse 52. We're ready to travel to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now, this verse it has about three different characteristics that remind us of John the Baptist. 
Number one is this word messenger. Throughout all of Luke, messenger is always translated as angel, except for one place back in Luke chapter 7 where it's put like this. Jesus is talking of John the Baptist and it said, this is he of whom it is written, behold I send my messenger before your face. So it's interesting now that the disciples are called messengers. Up to this point they've been called apostles, they've been called the twelve, but they haven't been called messengers. Okay, so they're messengers. They go ahead and they enter a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. Well, this is exactly also what Jesus says back in Luke 7 to describe John. I send my messenger before your face and he will prepare your way before you. So Luke is letting us know that the disciples are now stepping into the same kind of preparatory ministry as John the Baptist himself. John the Baptist had a calling. John the Baptist was meant to prepare people. John the Baptist was meant to preach in such a way that he would prepare people to meet Jesus. So here are the disciples walking in the pathway of John the Baptist. But we're gonna, what we're going to find about the disciples is that they have a misunderstanding of what Jesus has come to do. A misunderstanding of the application of Jesus' character in this context. Now before we get there, i got to talk about the Samaritans for just a moment. It says they go into a village of the Samaritans. Now, if you don't know, the Samaritans are a group of people that, were, uh, that lived between where Jesus was in Galilee and where he's headed into Jerusalem. So if you have uh, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea, they uh, Jesus has been up here, and this is a great illustration, isn't it? Are you with me so far? Sea of Galilee, Jerusalem, Jesus coming down Jerusalem. You with me? Okay. He's going to pass through Samaria. Samaria is the spot that used to be the Old Testament center of the northern tribes. But what happened is when the Assyrians came in to judge by God's uh, plan to judge the people of Israel, they took the ten tribes into Assyria. They took all of the most influential people and they only left the poor. And Assyria's plan when they conquered a people was to essentially take their culture and subsume it within um, the Assyrian way of life. So what the Assyrians would do would send Assyrians back into the northern part of the people that they conquered. There would be intermarriage and the people that came as a result of that intermarriage were called the Samaritans. They were essentially viewed by the ethnic Jews as half-breeds. They were a testimony to the fact that they had failed to do what they ought to have done. There were no good kings in Israel's history in the north. In fact, they were a testimony of continual wickedness and rebellion against what God had said. So now in Jesus' day, the Samaritans existed in a place where most Jews would take the eastern route around the Jordan River and would cross back and closer to Jerusalem. They would avoid even going through this area. As the Samaritans resettled that area, they would embrace eventually the truth of Yahweh and the truth of Israel's God, but they wouldn't embrace all of the Old Testament. They'd just embrace the first five books of the Bible. They wouldn't embrace Jerusalem as a place of worship. They'd create their own place of worship in a place called Mount Gerizim. So as you encounter the Samaritans in Luke's gospel. In two other places, they're described positively. This is the only place where this encounter is described in a negative fashion. But when the Samaritans are introduced, we know from other places in the Bible that Samaritans and Jews did not get along. In fact, over in John 4, when Jesus talks to the woman at the well, John tells us in verse 4 of John chapter 4 that Jews and Samaritans have nothing to do with each other. But Jesus chooses not to avoid them, not to ignore them, not to point them out or highlight them or ridicule them. Jesus chooses to go to them. Now for the Jews and the Jewish disciples, we're going to see why this is a problem. But do you remember how Jesus' ministry starts in Luke chapter 4? In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus' ministry starts, he goes to the synagogue of his hometown. You remember that? And he goes into the synagogue of Nazareth, into his hometown, and he talks about the fact that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah. And everybody has a real problem with that. And one of the reasons they have a problem with Jesus is they're so familiar with him. They've seen him grow up. He spent three decades among them. And then when Jesus starts talking about the fact that he's the fulfillment of the Bible, everybody, because of their familiarity with him, has a really hard time accepting who he is. 
So at the beginning, in his very hometown, Jesus is rejected because they can't accept and embrace the truth of who he is from the scriptures. But in a contrasting way, and here in Luke chapter 9, we have a village of the Samaritans, which Jesus has never been to. As far as we can tell from all of the commentaries that I've read on this passage, the Samaritans know next to nothing about Jesus. I think that bears out in the text, but they don't know of his miracles. They don't know he's raised the dead. They don't know he's calmed the wind and the waves. They don't know he's healed people. They don't know he's rebuked fever. They don't know any of that stuff. All they know about Jesus is he's a traveling Jew. And the problem that you're going to face here, just as Jesus is rejected in his hometown, Jesus is going to face rejection here, but for completely different reasons. In his hometown, he's rejected because people are too familiar with him. Here he's going to be rejected because people have absolutely no awareness of who he is. So when the Samaritans are mentioned, if you're a Jew, you're prepared for there to be consternation. You're prepared for there to be conflict in this text. And as such, that's what you find. I mean, the situation is ripe for misunderstanding, ripe for ignorance. All these Samaritans know is that he's a Jew and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's passing through. And that is enough for them to reject him. Look at verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. What do they know of him? Well, all they know of him as a Samaritan was who he was culturally. All they know of him is his background. All they know of him is the fact that he's a Jew. And what they know of the cultural Jews and the religious Jews of their day is that the Jews would want nothing to do with the Samaritans. The Jews would reject the place the Samaritans worship. The Jews had ethnic hatred and animosity toward the Samaritans. They didn't believe they were pure. They didn't believe they were holy. They didn't believe they could relate to God rightly. And all of this cultural context is helpful because all we know about Jesus and is the fact that he's a Jew on a place to worship in a place that we'd never go to. He's on his way to worship at Jerusalem where we think we need to worship on Mount Gerizim. And as he goes to Jerusalem, it's almost offensive to the Samaritans, that in his travel to Jerusalem, where we as the reader understand that he's going to be crucified, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be cast out and killed, all these Samaritans know is that by his journey to Jerusalem, he's tacitly rejecting their place of worship. So you get to this point in the story and you, you long for someone to give some explanation, don't you? You long for someone to go, don't you understand who he's come for? Haven't you read John chapter 4 about the tension that exists and how Jesus crosses the barrier to meet with this woman at the well? And Luke's story is very terse. It's very tight. All we know of these Samaritans is they don't receive him because Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We want nothing to do with this Jew. We don't know who he is. We don't know his background. We don't know what his claims are. We don't know what his miracles are. We don't know what he teaches. We don't want nothing to do with him simply because he's going to Jerusalem. Now, what could be a simple story of rejection and Jesus moving on is heightened by its tension because James and John are here. Jesus could simply move on, couldn't he? But we need something uncomfortable. We need James and John to say something dumb. And that's what you get. If you thought Peter saying dumb stuff on the Mount of Transfiguration was bad, <laughs> buckle up. Because James and John, I think James and John do a better job of putting their foot in their mouth than Peter does on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look at verse 54. When his disciples, James and John, saw it. Now, whether James and John were the messengers, which they very well could have been, or we have messengers who are coming back and reporting to Jesus what is going on, either way, James and John have an issue with what just happened. They've got a big issue with what just happened. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, before you laugh at that, have you ever said something like that to yourself in the car when you got cut off? <laughs> have you ever, like, looked for those psalms that is like, oh, God, hit them with that dump truck in Jesus' name, <laughs> Lord? 
And this, the thing that they say is so incredible. It's so, it's not like, do you know what they were supposed to do? We, that, do you know what the disciples were supposed to do when they were not rejected by us? By, when they, uh, let me try again. I've been gone for two weeks. I gotta get my words together. How, I'll say it, this is better. How were the disciples to respond to rejection? You, we're in Luke 9, right? Come back to Luke 9, verse 5. This is the beginning of the training of the 12. Luke 9, verse 5. Wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Is there anything in your Bible about fire? There's nothing in Luke 9, 5. I don't see anything in there. Not, and listen, it's not just judgment fire. It's Elijah and the prophets of Baal fire. It's Sodom and Gomorrah fire. It's, oh God, give me the heavenly flamethrower and let me get to work fire. It's decimation fire. It's not like, you get the idea, right? God, Lord, can we make it a crater? Can we totally destroy this village of Samaritans who will not receive you because you're headed to Jerusalem? Now, the contrast in this is fascinating to me because the disciples have met and encountered Jesus. They've seen his, James and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. James and John, along with Peter, saw Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They have had a front row seat to knowing and understanding Jesus. And I think we can at least confess that Jesus is now the most important thing in their life to them. Would you agree? He has totally captured their attention. They've left their fishing business to follow this rabbi. And they're continually amazed and confronted and worshiping this man. So much so they've given their entire life to be around him, to talk to him, to listen to him, to learn from him. And as they're so incredibly committed to Jesus, at the very same time that Jesus is the most important thing in their perspective, their application could not be further from appropriate, right? Which means, at least in this passage, we have people who are consumed with Jesus who totally fail to apply the heart of Jesus. Now, let me tease that out. Have there been things done in the name of Jesus that are wrong? Yeah, yeah a whole lot. Look, if, if, you're a, if you don't walk with Jesus, know Jesus, follow Jesus, you would say, I don't follow Jesus, I'm not a Christian. One of the great apologetics against the Christian faith are the things like the Crusades, are the things like St. Bartholomew's Massacre. Look it up. It's where the Catholics and the Protestants killed each other. It's the stories of forced conversions. It's the Spanish Inquisition that people can be so captured in their perspective of God that they inevitably live out completely opposite the heart of Christ. Do you do that? Yeah, yeah I do that too. Because I have a tendency to take Jesus' rejection personally and make it about who? Low Lord, these unfaithful ones out here. Jesus, Lord in heaven. Isn't it interesting the disciples think they actually have the authority and the power to call down fire from heaven? Isn't that incredible? I mean, I think I would have been content with like, go out, heal the sick, and preach. They're like, nah, we need an extra, we need the fire from heaven plan. Can you add that on to being a disciple for me? Now, we'll only use it if Jesus says so. Lord, do you want us? Is that your idea? So the goal, what they were supposed to do, is shake off the dust of their feet. Do you know what, you know what's interesting about this too? Uh, not only do you see uh, a comparison between John, because John thought this is what Jesus was going to do also, didn't he? He said, behold, the axe is at the foot of the tree. Behold his, his uh, threshing thing, whatever you thresh. 
is in his hand to clear out his wheat and burn the shaft with unquenchable fire. He thought that's what Jesus was coming to do. And in fact, the disciples thought, at least in some part, that the rejection of Jesus should lead to wrath. But what's interesting about this journey, what's interesting about what Jesus is doing in the hearts and minds of the disciples is that Jesus has to address an attitude problem. He's got to address a heart that's wrong. Because to get to the point where you suggest that we call down hellfire from heaven itself means that your heart might be off. Right? We might have some heart rearranging that needs to happen in my soul. What's interesting is, um, well, I'll talk about that later. Let's see what Jesus says. Verse 55, you there? You with me so far? Verse 55, he turned to rebuke them. Could you get a better verse than that? What does Jesus think about judgment done in his name by his disciples? He rebukes them. He believes that sins done in his name are wrong. Amen? That as much as I know and understand Jesus, I have no right to express my own preferences for how Jesus ought to act. Rather, I'm meant to uh, reorient my own heart and my own attitudes, my own perspectives, to make them like Jesus' perspective. And Jesus responds to people who are ignorant, who don't understand who he is, who have no way of understanding and knowing the things that he has done, he responds to those people with mercy. Amen? Was there a time when you didn't know and understand who Jesus was and what he did, and he in gracious loving kindness extended his hand of mercy to you? Amen. So Jesus has to, he doesn't just have to deal with the crusades, he's got to deal with the hand-picked disciples. The hand-picked disciples have that problem. And he's got to turn and look at his disciples and say, no. Which tells us that our response to people who don't receive Jesus, our response to people who are ignorant of who Jesus is and what he has done, our response to those who misunderstand who Jesus is and why he has come, because in this passage, I don't even know if the disciples understand what Jesus has come to do. That Jesus has set his face to go and die for sinners, that he might extend gracious mercy to those who misunderstand and sin against him. Our response to those kinds of people should never be wrath. Our response to the people who misunderstand Jesus, who reject Jesus, and who sometimes reject us in his name should never be wrath. Never. You can make a great platform on YouTube preaching wrath. You can get a lot of followers preaching justice. There are very few YouTube channels devoted to extending mercy, though. There are very few conversations. Look, you know this. You ever been around somebody who's merciful? It almost makes you uncomfortable because on the inside you go, yeah, but what about the sin? Don't we need to address the sin? I mean, I get mercy's good and all that, but what about justice? I like justice. And Jesus, without ever saying it, extends mercy to these people who don't understand him and who reject him merely for being a Jew and merely for going to a place called Jerusalem and has to rebuke his disciples. See, we live in a time where wrath and anger and justice and judgment are virtues, but not to Jesus' disciples. They've missed the heart of Jesus. Like, imagine, just imagine for a second, if our church's aroma if what people would experience when they came in here was mercy. What would that be like? Where the, the neighbors that you would bring to church would never feel looked down upon because they didn't understand the difference between John and 1 John. The people you talk to at work never felt like you eye roll them because they don't know who Jesus is or what he has come to do. What if there was that kind of relational long-suffering in the relationships with people that we have? That there was such an amount of 
patience that characterized our relationships rather than judgment and this desire to make the final call that only belongs to God. What would that be like? What would our church be like? Think about that. See, the only way that our church becomes like that is if, is if we remember what mercy is for us, right? We have to remember and, and consider the fact that we are not believers because we earned it. We are believers because of the mercy of God. We know and love Jesus because God was merciful to us. Nowhere is this more visible than in the way Paul describes his own conversion. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let me just, just read it to you. He says this, I thank him who has given me strength. This is, this is what James and John should have been thinking. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing to me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Why did we receive mercy? Because we were idiots. Idiots need mercy. The ignorant need mercy. The people who don't understand need mercy. Amen? Right? We need mercy. We need someone patient with us when we don't understand. We need someone who refuses to drop the hammer, who's willing to enter into a relationship, who's willing to be wronged and still extend his hand of mercy to us. And Paul says, I got mercy because I was an idiot. I was an unbeliever. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. How does Paul see himself? I'm the chief of sinners, totally ignorant, and was a complete unbeliever. However, somebody gave me mercy. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Amen? I, listen, you and I are trophies of mercy. I have nothing to offer God other than the fact God in his grace and mercy reached his hand down to take someone who was an ignorant unbeliever and to use me such that his mercy might be expansively and gloriously worshipped and trumpeted. That's how Paul understands his conversion experience. Why am I a believer? I don't know. God wants to show off his mercy. Now, come back to Luke here. After you're already, maybe you didn't go to 1 Timothy with me. But I want to end just with this. Luke, you've probably never memorized Luke 9.56. Okay, look at Luke 9.56. Ready? And they went on to another village. You ever memorize that verse? I, when you read that verse, memorize, I challenge you, you memorize that verse this week. Do you know why this verse I think is so important? Why is this verse here? Who cares? Here's what I want you to imagine. What if Jesus allowed James and John to do what they suggested? And you had the slow-mo of Jesus and the disciples walking away from the explosions as it destroys this Samaritan village. Hair in the wind, and Jesus' glory is vindicated, and James and John, we are incredible. <laughs> Do you think they'd ever get into another village? Honestly. Did you hear what happened in Samaria? You should go around. Right? But it's the mercy of Jesus Christ to show restraint in the face of the ignorant that allows him to have a continued ministry among the Samaritans. What does that mean? That means what if our conversations with people who didn't believe about Jesus, what we believe about Jesus, were characterized by looking forward to the next time I get to talk to them about Jesus? What if I oriented my conversations in such a way to let them know that I have only received mercy because of God's grace and what Jesus has done for me and I long to tell you about it today and I look forward to the next time I get to tell you about it again. 
And the reason I think Luke ends this is to let you know that his ministry of mercy continues because Jesus loves people who don't understand him. Jesus loves people from the wrong background. Jesus loves people who are sinners who misunderstand who he is and what he does. And when he responds to people like that, when we respond to people like that, we respond with the heart of mercy just like Christ to continue to extend a hand and go, I am only here because of the mercy of Christ. I am only here because God was gracious to me. And can we talk about that again? I know you don't understand him. I know you come from a different background. I know you might not believe like I believe. But could we continue in relationships such that I would continue to tell you about the mercy of Jesus? See, that's what it means to begin to walk and take a next step with Jesus at the level of our attitudes. It's to be transformed in our hearts Right? It's not just to do big, flashy, fire-from-heaven kinds of things in Jesus' name. It's to be changed so that our hearts might become more like Jesus' heart. See, the church is, is never meant to compromise the truth or to tolerate sin. That's not what we're talking about. The church is the place where we have the opportunity to tell people today is the day where you can experience the mercy of God in your life. And then when tomorrow comes and next week comes, we can say with confidence, today is the day where you can experience the mercy of God in your life. His hand is extended graciously to people with different backgrounds and different sins and different struggles and different fears and, and wrong thinking and, and areas of life that don't represent what Jesus wants of them. But Jesus continues to hold his hand out to those who misunderstand him and reject him because he's a God of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we pause and confess that we are a people who are vastly in need of mercy. How thankful we are that you have extended your hand to us to, to understand you, that you have been kind to the ungodly and the ignorant that in your loving grace you extend the hand of mercy to people who have rejected you. People who have wanted nothing to do with you. That even in the Old Testament you say that I've held out my hands all day long to a disobedient people. And Father, today is the day where you continue in grace to hold out the hand of mercy. Father, today might there be somebody who lays hold of the truth that Jesus loves them, and it's a trustworthy statement that we get to preach that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. Would our hearts and our attitudes be shaped by the truth of who you are? Would we respond as a church in mercy to the conversations and relationships that we have that we would be sensitive to continue to hold out hope for those who maybe have rejected us in the past and maybe will continue to reject us, but that we serve a God of mercy who's continuously holding his hand out. And Father, that, that would characterize our hearts, that would characterize our words, that it would characterize our deeds. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.